singularity. My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity One on One. Singularity One on One is a regular podcast feature of Singularity Weblog, and if you enjoy the show, you can show your support by either going to our donations page and sending money or by writing a brief review on iTunes. My guest today is Jim Harris. Jim Harris is one of North America's foremost management consultants, public speakers, authors and thinkers on change and leadership. His new book, A Crisis is a Terrible Thing to Waste, will be published in 2012. It documents hundreds of case studies on how environmental leadership is best for the bottom line, especially in these recessionary times. His most recent book, Blindsided, is a number one international bestseller, having hit the top spot on the Financial Times of London's European edition of Best Business Books. He is also the author of The Learning Paradox, which appeared on numerous bestseller lists, and co-author of national bestseller The 100 Best Companies to Work For in Canada. Hi Jim, and welcome to Singularity One-on-One. It's great to be on the show. Thank you very much for taking time to do this. Um, so I will jump straight into the questions with the first, um, the first one here, which is, Jim, um, how and why did you get interested in technology and innovation? Well, technology is a major driver of change in uh, our society and in the companies that we work in. And there are a number of laws that are actually uh, able to predict the changes that are going to be wrought upon us in the future. Moore's Law, for instance, everybody knows that the CPU doubles in power every 18 months, staying at the same price point. But when you look back uh, on what that actually means, it means that uh, the average person is wearing a wristwatch today that has more computational power than... uh, the first lunar landing module did. You know, it means that uh, your average notebook today has more power than uh, IBM's largest mainframe 15 years ago. And all of a sudden, new business models become possible, new ways of interacting with customers and so on. And uh, other laws like Gilder's law about bandwidth, you know, a single fiber, to a home or a business today can carry more bandwidth than the entire internet in uh, you know 2000. So we have these quantum growth in computational power and bandwidth, and it means that some businesses thrive while others will die. Like Blockbuster Video uh, went bankrupt, while Netflix, which relies on streaming uh, video these days, uh, has a, a market cap of 3.3 billion. So it means that there are winners and losers in business as certain companies adapt to the new realities that technology enables while others remain tied to their business model. And a great example is newspapers. Newspaper res- revenue has fallen by two thirds from 2000. So it peaked at uh, $63.5 billion, and it's plummeted to uh, only one-third of that in 2011. So what was it that did it to the newspapers? Well, it's things like Craigslist, which has sucked billions of dollars out of classified ads. It's Autotrader. It's Monster.ca, Monster.com. So 
technology enables all these shifts to occur. And if you're a job seeker, you can, uh, or if you're a company looking to hire, you can place ads for free on Craigslist, or you can pay hundreds of dollars to go in newspaper classifieds. And over time, the market actually um, is shifting, right? And why is that interesting to you? Well, it's interesting because uh, business leaders, executives who I work with in strategic planning sessions are always concerned about the best interest of their uh, business, the health of their business. And uh, businesses, obviously, it makes a difference to communities because when uh, businesses thrive, employment grows. And when it declines, employment shrinks. So uh, it's important to understand these shifts, how they occur, uh, why they're occurring, how to identify when they're about to occur, how to prevent your company or industry from being blindsided. And uh, all these are the issues that I look at in my book called Blindsided. Yeah, your uh, latest book, uh, Blindsided, is, is really a, a very, very interesting uh, work where you ask the main question, uh, can a business appear to be healthy yet actually be dead? So let me challenge you to expand and or narrow at the same time a little bit this question to sort of fit uh, the interests of, of our audience here for a second by changing the question in this way. Can a civilization appear to be healthy be, while actually being dead? So the, the answer would be yes. Um, if you look at levels of fish, of cod, caught on the east coast of Canada, the catch in tons went up and up and up. And at the peak, you would have thought things have never been better, but then it crashed to zero. So if at the peak you were to say, hey, it's, we're in dangerous territory here, um, this isn't sustainable, uh, the fishermen would have said, you're an idiot. We're, we have the best catch levels. I mean, we're making the most money we've ever made. And yet what we need to understand, there are limits to growth ecologically. And you can't confuse capital with principle. We can live off the interest. Uh, we can live off the interest that uh, Earth provides, but we can't be attacking the capital. Or if you look at, if you're financially oriented, we can't uh, be liquidating the balance sheet and calling it income, right? So uh, there are many examples like that in Blindsided, where a company may appear to be healthy, and yet underneath the surface, there are changes going on that are going to profoundly change that company or that industry. So why don't you tell us a little more about how companies are blindsided while, of course, we would have uh, the new frame of reference in, in the back of our mind, because that's what I think is very interesting because your story, your questions are very much relevant both at the personal level of us individually, but also I believe at the sort of civilization level, not only for companies, but for single individuals, for nations, and for us on the planet Earth. Mm -hmm. So how are companies blindsided? Well, I love to talk about how an 18-year-old kid decimated the profitability of a $40 billion industry. Uh, Sean Fanning with Napster changed forever music distribution. And some people might think, well, the record labels, the record companies killed Napster in court and therefore won. 
But why was it uh, Apple, not any of the major record labels, that reinvented music distribution in the digital age? So there is a bias to do things the way we've always done them in past in organizations and whole industries. And uh, my work, Blindsided, is very similar to the work of another uh, thinker on this uh, topic uh, called Clayton Christensen, who teaches at Harvard. And he's uh, written some books on the topic of disruptive innovation, which is very similar to Blindsided. And he's written a book called The Innovator's Dilemma. And I'm now going to put things within his frame of reference. He says companies are blindsided because they're well-managed. They focus uh, on their customer and they do heavy, heavy research. Well, uh, I thought those were all reasons why a company does well. But to give you an example, if uh, I own a Dell computer uh, notebook, a laptop, and Dell comes to me and says, uh, how big is the uh, hard disk in your laptop? And I'll say, well, it's 320 gigabytes. And they'd say, would you like a bigger hard disk, a smaller one, or the same in your next notebook? And I say, oh, I'd love a terabyte if you can give it to me. Not too expensively, of course. Well, so the customer said they want a bigger hard disk if they can get the same price point. But imagine a long uh, flash memory is getting so compact now that you can have a tiny little flash drive that's, you know, 64 gigabytes. And uh, you can put 64 gigabytes, 128, 256 eventually into your smartphone. Imagine now I plug in an external keyboard and an external monitor into my smartphone and all of a sudden I'm carrying around a computational device that's only ounces as opposed to pounds, and Dell gets blindsided because people are using their PDAs, their smartphones, as their computational device. And it's wireless and it includes a camera and all sorts of other good things. Well, Dell was listening to its customers say, I want a terabyte, but the customer doesn't know what the customer doesn't know. If all of a sudden my smartphone, whether it's a BlackBerry or an iPhone or an Android, can all of a sudden replace my computer so I don't have to lug around with a shoulder bag and strap, all of a sudden my PDA, my smartphone, becomes my everything, doesn't Dell get blindsided? But Dell was listening to their customers who said they want a terabyte. But why do I need a terabyte if I store everything in the cloud? As long as I can access it wirelessly or have the things I access most frequently on my, you know, 256 uh, flash drive embedded in my uh, smartphone, why do I need a notebook? Yeah, this actually reminds me to uh, something that Henry Ford said once, which was that uh, if he had asked his customers what they had wanted, they would have told him a faster course. Yeah. And so, you know, our customers can't tell us what they don't know. In other words, customers don't know what they don't know. So you have to have a different methodology then to uncover customer need. You have to understand from the customer what is their classic fear or frustration. And then proactively as a creative individual, a creative team or a, a company or even a whole industry, solve that problem. For instance, you know, who would have said when we had the Walkman, the, you remember the Sony Walkman? Yeah. Wow, this is great. You can walk around and, you know, 
you had this uh, auto reverse so it would flip your cassette without you having to take the cassette out and turn it over. Wow, this was great. But I mean, you could only have one, maybe two cassettes with you. You know, otherwise you had to carry a pouch. But, you know, with the new MP3 uh, format, you can carry all the music you've ever loved in your whole life on a single device that's smaller than a Walkman. But nobody ever knew that was possible. You know, if in the Sony Walkman paradigm... Smaller than the tape of the Walkman. Exactly, smaller than the tape. You know, in the Sony Walkman paradigm, you, you would never have thought, I'd love to take all the music I've ever had with me around because you'd be carrying this 50-pound thing on your back with a cassette, you know, holding cassettes, right? The customer doesn't know what the customer doesn't know. So, Jim, let me ask you this. Um, we seem to be living in a world of sort of a radical and even accelerating change. Uh, what are the laws of acceleration that are guiding that process? Well, uh, Blindside talks about 13 different laws. So at the base of it is Moore's Law, which is the expansion of uh, computational power. Gilder's Law, which is the expansion of bandwidth. Gilder's Law is operating at three times the rate that, um, that Moore's Law is. In other words, bandwidth, both demand for bandwidth and capacity uh, globally is uh, doubling every six months, not every 18 months like Moore's Law. But you overlay that with uh, the, uh, the compression of uh, storage uh, in flash, for instance, or the increasing densities on, on hard drives. That's another one of these trends. And when you begin to intersect all these, another one is uh, Hates's Law, which is on LED lighting. We're seeing a tenfold decrease in, in price of LEDs, which are light-emitting diodes, and a 20-fold uh, increase in uh, the light output per LED. And when you intersect those two, you see a 200-fold uh, improvements in uh, price performance in LED lighting over every decade. So that by 2020, the more major form of uh, lighting globally uh, sold will be LEDs. So this is a huge change. For instance, it has huge implications for the uh, electricity generation industry because 24% of electricity in North America is simply to power lighting. And if your lighting demand uh, in terms of electricity consumption drops 80%, why then is Ontario considering building $36 billion of new nuclear power plants when by the time the first plant produces the first kilowatt hour of power, uh, it's no longer relevant or necessary. Uh, and in fact, then we'd be not only dramatically oversupplied, but burdened with huge debt because nuclear in Ontario has uh, typically overrun in price by two and a half to four times uh, what the original estimates were. So um, these, there are important decisions around public policy in terms, and so you have to understand these laws of how they're going to impact society. Uh, back to your example about uh, Henry Ford, if you looked at the growth of horses in use in New York City and uh, drew a linear path uh, along with uh, population growth, you would have realized that the number of sanitary workers 
cleaning up horse manure from streets would have been horrendous. And yet there was this profound shift of the automobile, right? And so there are these discontinuous points in societal evolution that from a public policy perspective, if you don't understand them, you can be blindsided. Like Ontario making a decision to spend $36 billion on nuclear that's entirely unnecessary because demand falls with the advent of LED lighting. Mm-hmm. So, so let me ask you this then. Uh, within this context, instead of sort of suffering the brunt of all those uh, accelerating change type of laws, um, how do we take advantage of that situation? How do we prosper within that context rather than uh, face environmental and economical meltdowns? Well, the majority of companies do not prosper. In other words, uh, and there are some systemic problems around this. Who's closest to the future? The 65-year-old CEO uh, who does all the strategic planning or the 18-year-old who surfs the web every night and uh, on their mobile? Who, who's most disenfranchised from strategic planning? Well, is it any wonder we only get incremental change? So uh, one of the systemic ways to address this is something called reverse mentoring. When Jack Welsh was CEO of General Electric, he really didn't know anything about the internet. So he had some 20-somethings, some 30-somethings who came in every week and mentored him on the internet. Uh, so you, and it's not an either or, you can't confuse surfing the web, which is a technical competence, with business wisdom, right? You need business wisdom married to the new technologies. But most organizations are incapable of transformation because all their uh, systems are optimized for the old way of working. And often the new way of working is really uh, marginal, unprofitable, and low quality. So what do I mean by that? Well, when digital cameras came along, the initial ones were uh, half a megapixel. Well, you know, Kodak and and, uh, Polaroid looked at these and they said no self-respecting photographer is ever gonna be happy with a half megapixel camera. So they could ignore it because it was, and if they took this to their customers and said, hey, why don't you try this, you know, half megapixel camera, the customers looked at it and said, this is horrible, right? They're grainy and they're tiny resolute, you know, they're tiny little pictures. Maybe it's good for, you know, headshots on the web that are this big, but I don't see any other applications. But young people, who couldn't afford uh, silver halide, you know, film-based uh, uh, cameras, thought this was great because they could carry them around on their personnel, you know, their person all the time. You could look at the photos before developing them and delete them if they weren't good. You could look at them on your computer. You could email them to friends. And so there was a whole ecosystem that developed outside the standard customer base, and it grew. But they didn't just stop there with half megapixel. They improved dramatically to a point where the resolution on, uh, you know, these tiny pocket cameras is better than the old 35 millimeter film. And all of a sudden, by the time the uh, traditional camera companies woke up to this, it was too late. They got in too late, they'd lost their customer base. They'd reached a tipping point, as Malcolm Gladwell would say. 
So uh, companies have to get in. There's an old Confucian expression. It's easier to step on a dragon's egg than it is to step on a dragon. We need to get in early. And uh, ants have a very good strategy for finding new food and water. While 95% of the colony is harvesting food and water efficiently from known sources, 1% to 3% of the ants are deployed in new areas to find new sources. And so companies need to be deploying new, uh, new uh, or exploring new areas that could affect their business. And I interviewed James Gosling who's a Sun Microsystem fellow uh, that created Java. And when he created Java, he he took a whole team of engineers, software engineers off-site from the Sun Microsystems campus. Why off-site? Because he said, otherwise the corporate antibodies would get me, right? In other words, if what you're doing is disruptive, if it's going to cannibalize your existing products or services, Uh, the ecosystem within the business will work to kill just like, you know, human antibodies or or antibodies in our body fight a disease. The corporate antibodies will work to kill the innovation. And so one of the strategies is to create a completely separate company or division that can't be killed, doesn't report to the traditional structures or hierarchy, isn't locked into the distribution systems or the overheads of the old business and create a new model. And as that model grows, uh, more and more resources can be invested in it until it may become bigger than the original core business. That's a fantastic lesson. So uh, please guide me and help me take it one level or many levels down and a few levels up to both the individual level and perhaps the state or the civilization level. How do we apply those very valuable lessons at those levels, both personally and collectively? Well, on the personal level, um, my second book is called The Learning Paradox. And in that, I posit that 80% of the technology we'll use in our day-to-day lives hasn't been invented yet. And uh, I, I won't go into all the defense about this, but, you know, think about it. The smartphones didn't exist 10 years ago, and now, you know, everybody has a smartphone. Um, so uh, technology is transforming our lives, right? And therefore, the key to job security for an individual is learning, changing, and accepting uncertainty. And what we fear most as adults is learning, changing, and uncertainty. In other words, our very job security is based paradoxically on what we fear most. And so I called the book The Learning Paradox because learning is the key to our job security and it's what makes us uncomfortable. So one of the strategies um, in our bodies, if you want to develop an immunity to a new disease, they give you a, an injection of it, right? Uh, you, you get uh, inoculated. And what that allows your body to do is build an immunity to it, right? So we need the same thing. We need to look at learning in that same way and build up a tolerance to learning. Uh, we need to embrace learning. We need to make sure we're learning every day. And uh, organizations that are learning organizations are more capable of changing and adapting. And uh, so change is inevitable, right? 
It's going to happen. The only question is, are we going to be happy with it? Are we going to be on the positive side of it? Or are we going to be rolled over by it? whether it's individually or organizationally. And the same can happen with societies, and in fact, the whole planet. We are going to have to learn to change on a large planetary level. If everyone, in North, if everyone worldwide consumed as much per capita as we do in North America, we'd need another four planets to provide materially and to cope and to serve as a uh, a receptacle for our effluent, our waste. It's clearly not sustainable. And so we're going to have to change the material intensity with which we live in North America. Now, the good news is that we can reduce our energy use by 80% without changing our lifestyle, 90%, according to uh, Amory Levins of the Rocky Mountain Institute. And that's where things like LED lights are going to come in. Uh, I remember, I think uh, it was in your uh, book, The Learning Paradox, where you also speak about uh, following that line of reasoning. Uh, you speak about not earn a living, but learn it. Yes. C can you say a little more about that? Because I really like it. Well, I'll give you a, a personal example. Um, my business, uh, my core business uh, used to be in the speaking industry. I speak at conferences and seminars all around the world. And uh, when the 2008 recession hit, the speaking industry really tanked. Um, you know, some speakers won't uh, give you the uh, honest truth about how badly it tanked, but it was anywhere from 50 to 75% down. Um, because when companies uh, go into a, a recession, they start cutting costs. And conferences and seminars are one of the things they cut. They're not going to fly everyone to a five-star resort and hire a you know ten thousand dollar a day speaker to come in, or or worse, their speakers even higher price than that. So these are are expenses. Discretion. They're perceived as discretionary, and they get cut. So what do you do if your business tanks by fifty to seventy-five percent? Well. It encourages you to diversify. So in my business, I began writing white papers. Uh, and I wrote white papers for companies like IBM and the Ontario Electronic Stewardship uh, Council, all sorts of different clients, and began doing a lot more consulting. And began with something I'm very interested in personally, is uh, began working with clients around social media. And today, uh, four years after that um, recession hit, the revenue from all those uh, new uh, service offerings is greater than the revenue from speaking. So uh, the title, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. So was a crisis a bad thing or was it a good thing? In hindsight, it was a great thing because it, uh, it, uh, a crisis forces us out of our comfort zone to embark on new things. Uh, so... Uh, all of these things, it, change will happen. It's inevitable. Uh, the interesting thing for me is what is our reaction to that change? Yeah, and one of the very interesting things that you speak about in a crisis is a terrible thing to waste is uh, the fact that investi investing in green is profitable, is green, like the color of money. Would you mind elaborating a little more on that topic? Because people generally have the perception that Green is expensive, you know, that green doesn't pay, that it's more of an ideology, that it's not good for business. 
it's only for those hippies that are interested in sort of like uh, uh, from ideological point of view about Mother Earth and so on, rather than for the 65-year-old CEO that you were talking about. Sure. I'll give you a few examples. One is a personal example. In 2004, uh, we bought a Prius, which at the time people said was somewhere between $2,500 and $4,000 more expensive than the equivalent uh, car that wasn't a hybrid. Well, first off, at that time, we got, I think it was two or maybe $4,000 of government rebates. So that nullified that premium. But ever since then, we've been saving $2,500 a year in gas. So we have saved over eight years more than half the capital cost of the car. And over the lifetime of the car, we will save more in fuel savings than the car cost us to buy. So you might say, well, going green might cost you a little bit more upfront, but it will save you on the operating cost. And really, we need to look at total cost of ownership or life cycle cost. And when I look at life cycle cost, that Prius has been a huge win because it reduced my fuel costs by more than 60% from my prior car. So that would be the first example. What about the perception that maintenance cost is actually much higher on uh, Priuses and other hybrid cars? I, I've had no maintenance costs. Like, I mean, other than regular maintenance, um, I've had the car for eight years and uh, I just actually had to replace the 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 battery, the main battery, not the battery for the hybrid, but you know, the normal battery that every car has after eight years. So I mean, but that's normal wear and tear uh, that every car experiences. Um, here's a second example. Uh, and it's uh, an article that I've just written. By the time this is up, it'll probably be out in Backbone Magazine. Uh, when they build a new commercial office tower, there are many systems in the tower. Of course, there are the systems that the, the tenants see, like uh, there's the internet, the phone, lighting, uh, you know, uh, there'll be uh, blinds and audio visual and all these things. But there are all sorts of uh, systems that the uh, tenants don't see. There's heating, ventilation, and air conditioning called HVAC. There's a building automation system called BAS. There's uh, the elevator systems, there's a fire system, there's sprinkler, there's security, there's a camera system, right? There's access point control. And each one of these systems has a different network that runs up the center core of the building. And they're all proprietary. Well, at 18 York Street in Toronto, which is a brand new lead gold building built uh, by GWL, which is Great West Life Realty, uh, and the primary tenant is PwC, PricewaterhouseCoopers, they put everything on Ethernet. So they didn't have to run all, the all these separate cabling up through the entire 26-story building and out to the floors. They just ran one big fiber up, and then everything is Ethernet. It's all IP, Internet Protocol. And so the tenant, PwC, and the co uh, contractor uh, saved about a million dollars on their capital expenditure in the building trade. They call this CAPEX. Uh, 
CapEx. So not only was it cheaper up front on CapEx, it's cheaper on operating cost. And before, the tenant used to have to decide, do they put in their own networks or do they go off the network that the developer has put in? Because if they go off the developer's network, they're locked into the contracts with the people the developer uh, chose and they might not like what they're charged later, but these are the people who ran it and you have no choice. You're locked into contracts which may be expensive. But if you have an open standard that anybody can service, if your contractor isn't uh, providing you with good service, you just switch contractors. It's all open. There's nothing proprietary. And so it's cheaper on the operating cost. It's cheaper on the capital cost. It offers more flexibility. And you can control the lighting in your office and the blinds with your Cisco VOIP, VOIP phone. And imagine over time that you control uh, anything in your office with your smartphone because it's all IP. And, uh, you know, with wireless technologies, you could have an app on your uh, iPhone or your Android or your BlackBerry that would control the lighting in your office and uh, the blinds and everything else. And all of a sudden, you don't need to wire your office. You're saving millions of dollars as well as empowering the end user. And you're able to reconfigure without having to call the contractor in. So it's cheaper on capital. It's cheaper on operating. It offers more functionality and more flexibility. So uh, going green is a huge win. And then I'll give you one final example. And this will absolutely stagger you. In the hot summer sun, most roofs, flat roofs, are black tar. If you shifted that from black, and black, by the way, attracts the heat of the sun. So it is 80 degrees hotter on a black roof than it is a white roof. And where do we stick all the air handling exchange equipment? On the roof. And so you're drawing hot air in from on top of this black roof, 80 degrees hotter than it needs to be. And you now have to spend a huge amount of energy in a hot summer to chill it down to the appropriate temperature uh, and circulate it through the building. Do you know what the value of carbon emissions is if every roof in the world was a white roof valued uh, valuing carbon at $30 a ton? It's worth $2 trillion. The capital cost of a white roof over a black roof is no different. So wouldn't it be worthwhile to save $2 trillion for free? So, you know, going green, these are radical, eye-opening uh, opportunities for us to save, you know, trillions of dollars in energy at, uh, at no cost. Here's a simple one. If it, Just to clarify here for a second, when you said 80 degrees, do you mean Fahrenheit? Okay, just, just making sure. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. Yeah. All right. It's about, uh, I think it's around somewhere around 40, 40 degree difference. 27, 28. So. But it's on the high end of the scale. Yeah. yeah. But it's a big difference. Here's a simple thing. If every uh, North American car got the same fuel efficiency as my Prius, there'd be no need to import any oil into North America. There'd be no need to drill in the Gulf or the Arctic. And when oil 
was $147 a barrel in 2008, which prompted the recession. Uh, America was voluntarily sending $700 billion a year in, in transfer payments to the Middle East voluntarily because of the ignorance of uh, auto executives in Detroit refusing to aggressively embrace fuel efficiency. That tax of almost a trillion dollars on the uh, American economy was entirely voluntary, entirely unnecessary, uh, because of the, uh, the, the resistance to fuel efficiency. So Jim, let me ask you this then. What's the roadmap for the future that we're looking at here? I mean, is it a roadmap that goes through international regulation and policy changes such as Kyoto or Copenhagen? Or is it sort of innovation and incentivizing green investment and, and all those examples that you gave before? Or is it a mixture of both, perhaps? It's all of the above. There are many roads that lead to Mecca. Right? There are many approaches that must be taken. And in fact, nature has a diversity of approaches to any issue. So for instance, the turtle, the porcupine, and the skunk are all rather small animals, but each has a different defense system. Uh, in the same approach, in any problem that we face globally, we're going to need a multiplicity of approaches. In other words, there isn't a single silver bullet what we need is silver buckshot. Because I think, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was skeptical environmentalist Bjorn Lomborg who argues that uh, we have the wrong focus right now because cutting greenhouse gases costs too much to the economy. Instead, in his opinion, we must focus on new technology, new innovation. So for him, the return on investment is much better on uh, innovation and, and investing in new technologies, even in, in research for geoengineering, rather than focusing on how to improve the old ones. I don't have a lot of respect for Blomberg. I'll just state it up front. I, I just used an example of how if every roof in the world was white, we, it would reduce carbon emissions uh, by a value of $2 trillion if you value carbon at $30 a ton. And so here you have something, the, the capital cost on construction is no different for a white roof versus a black roof. On resurfacing, it's no different, but the operating cost of a white roof is, uh, or actually the life cycle cost of a white roof is less because uh, black roofs attract heat so much that the tar cracks and shortens the life of the roof. But a white roof reflecting the heat actually has uh, uh, the ability to last longer. So it's better all around. Not just does it lower your energy use, it also extends the life of the roof. So here's a simple solution uh, that's going to save trillions of dollars of carbon emissions. We don't need any research. Uh, we just need it to occur, right? And uh, so... There are so many examples. You know, I use the example of the Prius and fuel efficiency in North America. There's another example. So there are LED lighting, uh, another example. So there are so many examples of practical proven technologies that we can use right now that we don't need. The Sufis have an expression 
uh, Sufi being uh, ancient wisdom from desert people. Why do you seek new knowledge when you don't apply what you already know? So, so what's the solution though? What's the mechanism to incorporate all those things that we already have existing? Is it incentivizing? Is it a, a policy change? Is it sort of a public awareness campaign and, and sort of a mind shift in a general population? Well, one of the things... What's the systemic requirement? Yes, well, there are a couple things. One is uh, knowledge or information. Uh, there are uh, groups out there who are actively working to confuse issues. Groups that perceive... Uh, their corporate interests are in opposing uh, action to address climate change. Uh, oil companies, the most profitable industry in the world, oil companies, uh, make billions of dollars and they fund uh, groups that work to undermine the public perception that climate change is a real threat. Uh, so... We have to get the information out that going green is not only highly profitable, it uh, creates uh, better work environments, uh, it creates more jobs. For instance, retrofitting buildings creates far more jobs than building new energy sources. So if in a recession, why don't we focus on retrofitting homes and businesses to make them more energy efficient? and create jobs in every community rather than build new energy sources. Jim, I'd love to talk to you a lot more on all those issues, but time is advancing and I know your time is very valuable. So I'll just move on with our last two or three questions here. Uh, I know from one of your previous presentations, a favorite quote of yours is this one by Charles Darwin. It is not the strongest species that survives or the most intelligent. It is the one that is most adaptable to change. So my question to you, Jim, is are we, humanity, adaptable to change? We are adaptable. Um, we made that shift from the horses to cars, right? Uh, we uh, have made the shift from the telegraph to the telephone. We've made the shift from the telephone to the mobile. You know, we are capable of change absolutely perhaps though as that change is accelerating we're reaching our limit or what some people have called the ingenuity gap the demand on change gets so high and our ability to adapt to it is perhaps shrinking according to some people and therefore perhaps we're reaching that limit of, of adaptation i don't think so i don't think so now we we end up my i have a book that looks entirely at the personal reactions to change, it's called emotional learning, and uh, the key to uh, the key to personal job security is in learning, changing, and accepting uncertainty. And therefore, we need to work to improve our personal skills around that. Uh, so that's been an area of focus. So it's all almost uh, like the learning paradox on a personal and emotional level. To how do we begin to uh, accept these changes? For instance, I was talking to one guy in a presentation once who'd been a hockey player who'd broken uh, his uh, shoulder of his dominant hand. So he, could, he was right-handed. He could no longer write with a pen with his right hand for a number of weeks. He learned very quickly to write with his left hand. Now, 
you would never learn to do that unless you were forced to it by this circumstance. And sometimes circumstances like breaking your shoulder in a hockey game or a recession or technological change will force us to change. So the real question for me is, if we're capable of changing, why wait until you have a crisis? Why not step backwards from that and be innovative and rather than have others in your industry force change on you, why doesn't your company become or you personally become innovative and force change on others? That's fantastic and that's why you named your upcoming book A Crisis is a Terrible Thing to Waste. So Jim, for those of our viewers and listeners who want to learn more about you and your work, what's the best place to begin? So a couple places. Uh, my website is uh, www.jimharris.com. That's J-I-M-H-A-R-R-I-S.com. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, uh, you can find me there. It's just Jim Harris. Uh, you can find me at Twitter, which is at Jim Harris. Um, there's uh, a series, if you look at my LinkedIn profile, I list white papers and articles that I've written for many different publications, so you can read about it there. Uh, my email, you can send me an email, jimh at jimharris.com, if you're interested in having a presentation for your company or your industry association. Fantastic, and I can testify that I watched your presentation at the World Futures uh, Society Conference uh, recently here in Toronto, 2012, and it was outstanding. Um, so the very last question that I always ask from guests on my show is this. What is the one thing or the single most important message that you would like our viewers and listeners to take away from this interview with you today? Hmm. I'd say change is inevitable. So what we need to do is improve our capacity to embrace change and to drive change. And uh, this third book that I referred to in our talk here called uh, Emotional Learning uh, really could be summed up most easily from a, a Taoist story. And Taoism is an ancient Chinese religion. And uh, there was a poor village, but in this village was a farmer who was considered wealthy because he owned his own horse. And uh, he used it for farming and transportation. And one day his horse ran away. And the villagers said, what terrible luck, you've just lost all your wealth. And the farmer said, maybe. And two days later, his horse came back bringing with it two wild horses. And they said, what incredible luck, all your wealth has returned to you. In fact, you're three times as wealthy as you were before. And he said, maybe. And that day, his only son was out riding one of the wild horses trying to tame it. It bucked him off. And 3,000 years ago, a broken femur was life-threatening. And the villagers said, what terrible luck, your only son with a broken leg. And he said, maybe. And the next day, the emperor's men came through the village, conscripting every young man to fight in a war, taking every young man to face their certain death, except for the farmer's son. And the villagers said, what incredible luck. And the farmer said, maybe. And really, this is what life is like. Sometimes the most wonderful things in hindsight aren't, and sometimes the most difficult situations are the seedbed upon which wonderful things are built. But I don't know until I look back in hindsight. And so how do I develop a tolerance for situations that might be upsetting 
to figure out how to respond with maximum joy and maximum contribution or service regardless of what's happening in the external world. You know, because I really don't want my emotional life to follow the NASDAQ index. <laughs> so this is really the essence of what uh, learning how to deal with changes in life. And that, in my opinion, the Taoist former teaches me that regardless of what is happening externally, I can live with joy and serenity and maximum contribution. That's fantastic. Jim Harris, thank you very much for being with us today. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Thank you. Great, Nicola.